there are something like 600,000 um, undocumented migrants in the UK, of whom 120,000 are children. This process of, of charging really creates conflict for clinicians who have a responsibility to look after the individual patient on the basis of their need. I think sometimes we jump to a conclusion when we think about asylum seekers or refugees or undocumented migrants, and, but I think we also need to take care in thinking about the situation that they are arriving in and what the health policies and indeed wider immigration policies within our own country, how that's impacting upon their wider determinants of health. Hello and welcome to this edition of the ADC Spotlight podcast. My name is Rachel Ekmeke and I'm the senior editor at Archives of Disease and Childhood. I have here with me the author of the paper, How Can We Meet the Health Needs of Child Refugees, Asylum Seekers and Undocumented Migrants, Dr. Amy Stevens. The paper is online and appears in the February 2020 edition of ADC. I have also with me the ADC Health Policy Editor, John Puntus. So before we start the conversation, please could you introduce yourselves? John, if I start with you. Yes, thank you, Rachel. So uh, I'm John Puntus. I used to work as a um, consultant paediatric gastroenterologist, but retired relatively recently. And uh, I have an interest in health policy and recently began to commission health policy articles for archives of disease of childhood. Thank you. Amy? Yeah, hi Rachel, I'm Amy Stevens. I'm a public health registrar. Um, I previously was on the paediatric training scheme until 2018 when I switched to public health training with a long-term plan to pursue a career in global child health. So we've got some diversity in our backgrounds, gastroenterology, public health, um, general paediatrics and paediatric intensive care, but first and foremost I think we've got an interest in child health. So Going into the paper then, Amy, I wonder whether you can summarise your view for the listeners. Yeah, um, so this paper was written or drawn from a dissertation I did for my Masters of Public Health and it was kind of um, the concept of the idea of the paper first came around on the back of the European migrant crisis. And I wanted to look at the service provision for child asylum seekers, refugees and undocumented migrants in England more specifically. And when I started reading around the topic, it kind of became apparent that um, this group of children, because they were both children and immigrants, they're kind of stranded at some crossroads of differing policy agendas. So on one hand, they're entitled to um, the right to health, which is enshrined in numerous international treaties, which have been ratified by the UK. But they're also entitled to a protection from the government, because obviously we've got the Children's Act and the government has a duty of care to this group or they're not excluded from the government's hostile immigration um, policies. So it's kind of these contradictory things going on. So I was really keen to explore that a bit more. And that was kind of the foundation to this paper. So that's the background. Could you say briefly what it is that you've identified in your, uh, in your reading? Yeah. Um, okay, so when you have a look at this particular group, it's really important that we understand their life experiences. So when you look at children, particularly asylum seekers and, and refugees, um, their kind of life experiences both pre-transit, so before their migration journey, their experiences during their migration journey, and also their post-migration experiences, 
all influence what their health needs are. So when you look at the literature, you can see that often um, these children come from areas which have um, endemic diseases. They often have weakened health infrastructures. And so they often haven't had the kind of healthcare and the vaccinations that um, would be in place in um, the developed country in which they're arriving to. And often they're fleeing conflict or famine or persecution or violence. So they've often witnessed quite traumatic events or indeed been subject to torture or violence themselves. Some of them may have been former child soldiers or, or we often see as well um, that some of the children during transit may also have experienced some quite horrific incidents and violence and sexual abuse on the journeys. They're often um, physically demanding journeys, dangerous transport. Many of us will have seen the pictures on the television of the, the boats that are coming over and the kind of conditions that they're traveling in, which are awful for any human being. But if you particularly think about children who are especially vulnerable, they're very much at risk of, of health problems throughout that trip as well as the conditions they're sleeping in in, um, in the refugee camps that they may be passing through. Um, but, but also, oh, it's really important to think about what happens once they arrive in the UK, because actually the literature suggests that many arrive in good health, and what their experience is once they arrive here actually causes a deterioration in the health. And I think that was one of the most alarming things that came out for me from this piece of work. And it was kind of thinking about um, mental health in particular. So thinking about the long um, and complex immigration process they have to go through and the insecurity of their status and what that does to a person. They're not knowing, am I going to be sent back to a place that I don't feel safe? Um, but also being in a country where many of the children don't know people. Some of them aren't even with their own families or caregivers. They've been separated from them. It's a new language. It's a new culture. There's a feeling of not belonging and loneliness and isolation. And, and these all have huge impacts on, on the children. So I think sometimes we jump to a conclusion when we think about asylum seekers or refugees or undocumented migrants. And, and we think about the kind of infectious diseases and, and again, perhaps the more obvious things um, that we would associate with people who've gone through those journeys. But I think we also need to take care in thinking about the situation that they are arriving in and what the health policies and indeed wider immigration policies within our own country, how that's impacting upon their wider determinants of health. And I think that's what I'm trying to explore and explain um, within my paper. So that's quite a nice introduction to you, John, because Amy has just outlined the different backgrounds children might have through their journey um, and then they arrive here. So could you um, put uh, this group of children or these groups of children in the context of the UK wider health policy agenda. What's your take on that? Well, I think as, uh, as Amy points out in her article, there are something like 600,000 um, undocumented migrants in the UK, of whom 120,000 are children. And uh, they clearly have all the health needs that uh, all children have, but on top of this additional needs that relate to the kind of uh, factors um, that, that Amy was uh, just highlighting in terms of um, previous uh, family experiences uh, and uh, often uh, very difficult journeys. And uh, I think the key thing for 
pediatricians to remember is that um, our job is to provide health care to those in need. And uh, traditionally, uh, fortunately, we haven't had to think about whether people can afford to pay for it. And that's been a, a basic principle enshrined within the NHS. Um, as part of the hostile environment designed to make life more difficult for migrants um, coming to this country, we now have a system whereby people are meant to be able to establish their eligibility for free care under the NHS. Uh, and that's simply not a straightforward and easy thing to do. The regulations are quite complex uh, and they're often um, not known about or not understood in any detail by health professionals. Uh, and um, we have a situation where people are being asked to pay for care up front uh, unless it's urgent and then they can get care but they'll be charged um, at a, a later date and the, the concern is that this is acting as a barrier uh, for a vulnerable group of patients a barrier to them getting their health care that they need now that um is an argument that's now been made really pretty much by all the medical royal colleges, although our college, the College of Pediatrics and Child Health, was one of the first colleges to articulate this. But now the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, which represents all the medical colleges, has said that the whole charging system for uh, migrants is actually a barrier to healthcare uh, and they've not said it should be completely abandoned, but they've said it should be suspended until there is an inquiry um, that assesses uh, whether it's causing more harm than good and also looks at its cost effectiveness, which is a, another issue. So you raised several underlying principles there, John, um, as an individual doctor that your task is um, to try and increase the health of your patients where possible. Then also you might be a citizen of a, of a country um, that for several reasons um, have put in place uh, rules, regulations and legislation that might not necessarily align uh, with your principles as, a, as an individual paediatrician. So, Maybe then from the both of you, could you give some kind of inkling how that uh, bridge might be crossed? What can an individual do? Well, well, if I could just come back for a moment, because it's not, um, in a sense, just a, uh, a clinician's responsibility, um, but also that there's government commitments to promote and protect child health, and there's international obligations under the United Nations um, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, there's also recommendations which have been outlined uh, in the Global Compact for Migration, which the government signed in 2018. And these are kind of commitments internationally to actually look after the health of uh, migrants, accepting that migration 
is um, becoming uh, a much more pressing problem in many um, developed countries like the UK. Uh, and unfortunately, this process of, of charging, and Amy alludes to this in her article, really creates conflict for clinicians who have a responsibility to look after the individual patient on the basis of their need and yet are being incorporated uh, in um, certain respects into uh, home office and immigration office practices in terms of trying to establish uh, people's entitlement to free treatment. And, and we've already have lots of examples of how that's gone wrong. And for example, with the Windrush generation, we saw people who had every entitlement to have free healthcare, but because of absence of documentation, uh, were being refused treatment. Indeed. So in terms of knowing about the situation of children, there will be a differential in the uh, healthcare workers say in the UK, some people will have a day-to-day interaction with this group in our population and others not at all. Um, Where might you say, Amy, would be a good place to start to uh, think about education oneself, about what those rules might be and where to have the conversations and then see how one might respond to that? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to begin with is to actually understand the difference between asylum seekers, refugees and undocumented migrants, because I think often we use the words interchangeably, but they, they, there are important differences in terms of their legal rights and the differences in legal rights then influences the application of the immigration policy and what their public service entitlements are. So I think as, as health professionals, we really if we're going to go on to then understand what a child's entitlements are, we first of all need to understand kind of which grouping, kind of legal grouping that they belong to. The article will be free to uh, access for a month after the podcast is, uh, is posted, but a brief summary would be helpful if you can do that. Yeah, so an asylum seeker is a person who's departed their country of origin and they're officially applied for asylum in another country, but they're awaiting that decision for their request for refugee status. So the refugee status is awarded by the Home Office in England, and that's on recognition that they meet the definition of a refugee as given by the Refugee Convention. That's quite a detailed definition, and and that's in the article. And then when we talk about undocumented migrants or irregular immigrants, We're then talking about um, foreign-born nationals, um, and these could be people who have outstayed um, their allowed period of time if they've been refused asylum. It can include um, people who have been trafficked to the country, and it could also include people who've been born to undocumented migrant parents. And that probably makes up the largest group of undocumented migrants um, are those whose parents may have either entered the country illegally or been smuggled. And actually, you've got this cohort of children who have been born in Britain, but they're still classed as undocumented migrants, um, according to law, and therefore don't get a lot of the entitlements that other British-born regular status people would get. So you give the definitions in your article, uh, so that you can start with that, um, and then where to go. So 
um, what resources are there out there for people to access, learn a bit more about this vulnerable group of children? An excellent starting point is if you put into any kind of search engine and um, patients not passports toolkit and this has got um, a whole set of resources aimed at both health professionals but also community members and it, it explains about the hostile environment policies, it talks about the overseas um, visitor charging but it also gives you ideas on things that you can do yourself both either within hospitals on a one-to-one -one basis with patients you encounter and things that you might see happening on your ward. But also it talks about kind of wider things. So how can we act as advocates for these people? What, where can we signpost them to further support? How can we set up local campaigns? And that really is a good resource. But equally, um, MEDACT is another excellent point, um, starting point to look at this issue, as is Doctors of the World and docs not cops and many of them kind of interlink um, together on campaigns as well but I would suggest they're really good resources um, for paediatricians to refer to on this. Thanks uh, Amy. John could you talk a bit about sort of the at the national level what conversations are being held that you're aware of? Well there is a lot of opposition to charging that's being uh, articulated by various campaigning groups, um, not least those who see the whole system of charging as being a fundamental undermining of founding principles of the NHS. But unfortunately, it's largely falling on deaf ears. Uh, I think another very useful short paper is one that was published in archives back in August 2019 and that was by Neil Russell and colleagues from St George's, and it's called Charging Undocumented Migrant Children for NHS Healthcare, Implications for Child Health. And uh, that very much complements Amy's article. Um, but in that article, they do talk about what paediatricians can and should do. Uh, and that includes becoming familiar with the regulations and one reason for that is so that you know which conditions can be defined as urgent uh, so that they can be accessed quickly uh, which conditions uh, are actually exempted from charging and also they understand how to challenge decisions made by overseas visitors managers in hospital who are dealing with charging patients and uh, handing out the bills. I think another very important point that's made in Neil Russell's article is that uh, clinicians, paediatricians need to be collecting information on the harm that is being done uh, through these charging processes and the barrier that they represent. Uh, and that's because although the government have undertaken an inquiry into the effects of charging, uh, they have not made this public and they refuse to make it public while insisting that their findings show no detrimental effects. Now, a lot of clinicians are challenging that on the basis of their own experience. And that 
uh, those experiences need, need, need to be documented and, and collected. Uh, and um, a very important report, which was held back until after the election, but was, was published um, in the, at the end of December, was from the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit in Oxford. And it was looking at uh, deaths of um, women in pregnancy. And it flagged up the deaths of three women um, who had been deterred from seeking antenatal care uh, because of concerns about being charged for treatment, uh, although it turned out that all of them were actually entitled um, to treatment under the NHS without upfront payment. But that was a really striking example of how uh, fear of um, large bills and also being reported to the Home Office for non-payment of bills and that compromising um, applications for refugee status, how this is deterring uh, patients from getting medical treatment they need and is actually causing uh, serious harm, in this case, uh, almost certainly deaths of several women. So those are very sobering data to, uh, to think about. So we've talked about being able to access information in this area. We talked about advocacy as a what is it that what might be able to do, be that as an individual clinician um, or person working in healthcare or even as a, as a citizen. Um, we've talked about the colleges that uh, are starting to uh, be vocal about the detrimental effects of uh, some of the health policies in this uh, in this country we haven't quite addressed yet is sort of where are uh, areas for research um, which research agendas or which research priorities might we might we think about in order to get to a better situation than we're currently um, Amy would you take that question yeah um, I think it's important when we're trying to identify research priorities that we we think about um, consulting all the stakeholders that are involved with that so we kind of need to talk to the, the hospitals that are treating these patients the groups themselves the asylum seekers the refugees the undocumented migrants where we're able to access them but also thinking about the charity groups that work with this group and the kind of problems that they see frontline um, you know like doctors of the world as I've mentioned before and things that we need to do is, is to fill in the evidence gaps that are required to, to inform policy and public health. So John was already saying there's obviously been this report that's been carried out but hasn't been published. So we don't actually know what the outcome is of the introduction of the overseas visitor charging. And it's really important that we understand the impacts to know whether this is a safe policy to take forward, which it doesn't appear to do so. But we need the evidence to inform our arguments. Um, but I think other kind of areas that we could, could look at is thinking about um, the effectiveness of screening and vaccination programs for newly arriving migrants. And also there's been a lot of discussion about the effectiveness of Western derived mental health interventions in children from different cultural backgrounds. Many of them have post-traumatic stress disorders, but actually the, the system we have set up to support mental health problems in the UK might not be applicable or effective 
in children who have come from different cultural contexts and experiences. So that's more of a niche area of work, but certainly not one to be ignored. So I think there's lots of different opportunities for research. And it's really important that we, that we kind of speak to people involved in all aspects of this population's care and the people themselves to understand well, where are the gaps that we need to fill. Um, but certainly people within the child health community have, have played an important role either informing the research or indeed carrying it out themselves. Mm. John? Well, one of the research questions from a health policy perspective is, is this whole exercise cost effective? And um, there's uh, a certain amount of evidence currently available to suggest it isn't. Um, the, the size uh, of the problem of health tourism, which is really the government justification for introducing charges. The government's own estimate is that only something like 0.3% of the overall NHS budget uh, is taken up with health tourism. Uh, my, my guess is that that's an over uh, that's a, a, an, an overcalculation. Uh, but if you think that uh, all hospitals, pretty much all hospitals, now have overseas visitors, managers, uh, with a team of people working to identify uh, those who might not be eligible for free care, and then working on trying to get payments. Uh, that's probably costing a lot more than the amount of money that you could expect to bring back into the NHS. So it very much undermines the whole argument in favour of setting up a charging system. Uh, and I think um, uh, research into that area, is it cost effective, uh, would be very powerful. Uh, and I guess it would uh, seriously undermine the arguments for having a charging system in place. Um, again, just on a kind of local level, uh, I do think it's really important that um, clinicians collect patient stories and their own experiences and then channel those to some of the organisations that Amy mentioned, like MEDACT and Docs Not Cops. And why not speak to your own overseas visitors managers, get to know them, and find out from your trust what they're doing. Um, that might have to be done through a freedom of information request, but that's easy to do. And you can usually find out how to do that from the trust website, and it goes through to the governance office, but you can find out how many patients they are actually charging, how much money uh, they're asking for, how much of that they've actually got back, which is another issue, of course, and also very importantly, how many patients they've actually referred to the home office for non-payment of debt, uh, which I think is a really um, serious issue certainly in terms of deterring people from seeking medical treatment, knowing that they may be reported to the uh, Home Office, and this may have uh, negative uh, effects on their application um, for settled status in the UK. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, John. Amy, any last comments from you? 
Yeah, one of the real take-home messages I wanted the readers to have is that I think as health professionals, we're in such a unique position because we witness firsthand the direct and the indirect health impact of the policies. And we know from the GMC, we have this duty of care to our patients, and therefore we have a responsibility to report when organisations or indeed government decisions are having adverse health outcomes. And I think we're fortunate because our professional reputation means as a collective, we can demand the ear of those in power. And we do have a voice that's trusted by the general public in a time when very few are. So I think it's really important that child health workers do understand we, we do have the potential power to make a difference for vulnerable populations who perhaps are unable themselves to kind of stand up and speak out about what they're experiencing. So I really hope that the paper inspires and motivates people to kind of step forward and, and be the advocate for the, the patient in front of them because they can make a difference despite it feeling like something beyond their own sphere of control. Oh, thank you. That's a, that's a fabulous uh, place to, to leave this here for now. So thank you for, for joining me, Amy and John. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember, you can read the full paper uh, at adc.bmj.com and look forward to seeing the next one.